Thank you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fisheriespod. If you are of the generous sort, you can be like Jerry, John, Garrett, Ben, and Janet, who all support the podcast on Patreon. Through Patreon, you are able to support the show with either a recurring or one-time donation, which helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store if you feel inclined. So check it out. Our guest today is Morgan Pizak. Morgan is entering the final year of her PhD at Carleton University, supervised by Dr. Stephen Cook and Dr. John Midwood of DFO. Her thesis is entitled Advancing Restoration Ecology of Freshwater Fish Habitat Within the Laurentian Great Lakes. Morgan has recently returned from a research visit in Western Norway using acoustic telemetry to look at movements of salmon, cod, and pollock. Prior to entering the fish world, Morgan worked with snapping turtles, humpback whales, and red squirrels. Welcome to the podcast, Morgan. Thanks so much for having me. Very happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to chat. So starting off easy with a question I always like to ask all of our guests, what got you interested in the field of fisheries and fisheries research? Yeah, so I feel like I'm relatively unique because a lot of people that are in fisheries really grew up angling and then they've just been obsessed with fish their whole life. Whereas me, like the only time I went angling was when my parents put a a hot dog on the end of a lure and then my dog ate it and she had to go get surgery. (laughs) So I, yeah, so I was more so interested. I've always been interested in conservation and I've been more so interested in movement ecology. So like, how can we save animals if we don't know where they are and when and why. I was first uh, studying snapping turtles and I was using radio telemetry to study them, their movements and interactions with roads. And then after that, I got a job with Fisheries and Oceans Canada and I was studying fish ecology and that was my first introduction to fish at that point. And then within a couple weeks of being there, my boss at the time, Dr. John Midwood, uh, introduced me to Dr. Stephen Cook and He was like, Steve's got a PhD position if you want it. And I was like, this guy is like the king of the fish world. And I know like how productive he is and that that it would be a great opportunity. So I was just excited to keep learning more about movement ecology, using acoustic telemetry on a massive scale. And I didn't really care what the species was because at the end of the day, it's just one another line of data in my 35 million line data set of movements. So I'm just happy to contribute to conservation and movement ecology in general. That's great. I love that your interest in fisheries stemmed from an interest in conservation or freshwater ecology. So let's take it back to the beginning when you first started your academic career. You did your undergraduate degree in zoology at the University of Guelph in Guelph, Ontario. So did you participate in any research projects during your bachelor's degree? Yeah, so I I landed my first field job in between the summer of my second and third year. I was so excited because everybody at Guelph is so wildlife and fisheries oriented. Everybody would come back after the summer and be like, what was your field job? what was your field job? And I was like, oh shit, I don't have a field job. I have to go out and get me one of those. So I got a job after applying to like 75 different field jobs. 
with the Kluwani Red Squirrel Project, which has been going on for 30 years. And so they, I, I shipped myself with a one-way ticket up to the far, the, basically the furthest point I could have gone in the country to like the southwest corner of the Yukon. And yeah, I studied squirrels that whole summer. I got really good at climbing trees, milking squirrels, first attempt at collecting data, managing data. So yeah, that was my, my first field job. And it was really hard. The only good news is like everything has been easier since then because I'm not like, wow, I haven't climbed like 10 trees today and walked like 20 kilometers. So it's like everything after that has been chill. That's good. There's a lot to break down here because you mentioned milking squirrels. So let's talk about this project because I'm fascinated now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the, the project is really cool because it's basically in, in, in the wild lab. So the, the way the project works is we have a grid where every single squirrel within that one kilometer is known. So we know like the mothers, all their relatives, we have all the genetic samples. And so we can study behavior through that so if I was walking around in the forest I would and I heard a squirrel I would get my binoculars out figure out which one it was and then record oh this squirrel barked at this squirrel and then later on the the researchers I was just a data technician at the time could could figure out questions like how were were they related to each other was that family were they defending so that's just one type of question they would answer but anyways back to the milking that's like the important bit here we had to figure out how long the squirrels were in their pregnancy. So to keep track of every single squirrel, we had to radio collar them and figure out when they're going to give birth. So then then once they gave birth, we would climb up the trees, collect the babies, then get the genetics. That's how we kept track of all of them. So we were just figuring out at what point in their pregnancy they were by milking them. That is an insane summer job. Sounds like the best ever. Climbing trees and milking squirrels. Who else can say that they've done that? And from that field experience, did that sort of lead you down the path of wanting to continue with doing field work and research? I was just a greater Toronto area girly that got taken from the suburbs and dropped in the middle of the wilderness where I had no power, no water, no internet. I didn't even know places didn't have cell service at the time. So it was, I would call my parents once a week when I drove into town to shower to let them know I was alive and that I hadn't got taken by a grizzly bear. But anyways, I guess I'm still doing research so I didn't get totally scared away, but it was a tough summer physically, mentally, and the bear aspect. Yeah, so... I think getting that first field job was really helpful because I had something to talk about when I went to go on to graduate school interviews. So I know what it's like to be in tough environments in inclement weather, and I know how to collect data and input it in management. So in that way, like getting the first field job was really helpful when I was interviewing for grad school. Of course, those are all important skills to have, especially when wanting to continue on in research and do more field work. So after completing your Bachelor of Science at Guelph, you continued on to graduate school. You attended McMaster University and received your Master's of Science. Tell us a bit about what your master's research project was focused on. I studied snapping turtles in an urban marsh, and snapping turtles have a relatively unique life history. So they take a really long time to reach sexual maturity, and so approximately 20 years. And then once they do... They lay their eggs uh, once once a year, and it's probably 30 to 40 eggs. And 
even if one egg makes it to adulthood, that's considered super lucky. So especially in urban areas, as soon as they lay the eggs, there's lots of different mammals like skunks or, or raccoons that are coming out to, to eat all the eggs. So anyway, snapping turtles have it really, really rough in general and then extra rough in urban areas. So I was studying threats facing them in urban areas and that was mostly habitat loss and interactions with roads. So there's a lot of road mortality in, in my study system. And you mentioned that you did your research in an urban marsh. Where was this? Yeah, so it was like right in uh, McMaster University's backyard. I could see the marsh from the back of campus. So it was in Coots Paradise Marsh, which is in the far western end of Lake Ontario. But yeah, the marsh is bisected by a four-lane highway with a speed limit of 70 kilometers an hour. So any turtle that's trying to cross to go between parts of the marsh has bad luck. That sounds interesting. So what did that field work involve? First, to figure out where the turtles went, I had to cap, catch them. And uh, that was actually quite difficult. I set out nets, but I didn't catch a single one of my turtles in the net. So basically it involved me seeing them and going and catching them by hand or walking through the marsh and feeling one and then grabbing it from underneath the water and then tagging it. And then from there, I followed them for uh, two years once a week. So I was really like living in the field and radio tracking them every single day, all throughout the summer. Uh, and then I even tracked them throughout the winter too. So once, once a month in the winter. And for those who don't know, what is radio telemetry when you talk about tracking them? So we put a tag on the back of the carapace, which is the shell, and it emits a radio signal. And then I have a receiver, which picks up the noise that the tag is making. And um, so I'm able to track them sort of like by using hot and cold. So if the noise that the receiver is making is louder, I know I'm closer versus if it's fainter, then, then the turtle is further away. So I basically just go round and round until I find out where that turtle is based on the sound that the receiver picks up. That's a great way to explain it. And how many turtles did you end up tagging? Yeah, so it's funny going from radio telemetry to acoustic telemetry because for my master's I had 13 turtles and I painstakingly collected every single one of my data points and I was so proud of this data set that had I think it was around 750 points in it. And then I go to acoustic telemetry and now I'm absolutely drowning in data over a project that's been going on since 2010. And yeah, I just brought the data into R yesterday, actually, and the full data set is 34 million lines. So it's just showing a difference in the technology across those two. <laughs> so what were the major findings of your research once you got those 750 data points? analyzed and in our so I calculated uh, home ranges and basically we found that the home ranges were directly overlapping with the road so that was concerning and then we also had some long-term mark recapture data so we were able to look at populations and we found that the populations had declined by over 80 percent in the past 50 years so massive declines and then we also used aerial imagery from 1910 to uh, 2015, and I looked at the habitat changes, and there was massive habitat loss throughout the area as well. 
Um, and then the last finding was we took that road mortality data and then we did something called the population viability analyses. So that basically says what's the population now, how much road mortality is happening and what's the population going to look like in 100 years, in 200 years, in 300 years. And basically, if even one turtle, one adult turtle dies per year, the population could become extirpated. Oh, and I've discovered a disease by accident. You did? I found a turtle that had some weird, um, not like a mass, but it had sores all over its eyes. And so I brought it into a vet and then the vet couldn't save it. So then they brought it to the University of Guelph and together with the uh, team at Guelph, we figured out that it was a ranavirus, which is typically in frogs, but it has been known to cause mass mortality in, in other turtle species. So this was the first time that ranavirus had been recorded in snapping turtles at all. So that was also an unfortunate finding, but good to know that it's there and in, increase the knowledge of the range of the disease and the number of species Currently, you are a PhD student at Carleton University in Ottawa, Ontario, and are supervised by Dr. Stephen Cook and Dr. John Midwood. So what is your research focused on now? So I've moved on to acoustic telemetry, which is a different type of way to see where animals move. So that entails taking the fish and inserting a tag into them. And then we have these listening stations all throughout my study system, which is Toronto Harbor. And once a fish swims past, it makes a noise and then the stations record which fish was there and when. So I've been lucky that this, that this project has been going on since 2010. So it's a really rich data set. We have got eight species tagged, but I'm focusing on common carp, largemouth bass, and northern pike. And we're seeing if habitat restoration efforts throughout the harbor are working by seeing how they're using the habitat before and after restoration. Interesting. So what sort of habitat restoration efforts have been made in the Toronto Harbor? And when did this start? The habitat destruction goes back to 200 years ago. There was 400 hectares of wetland, which was destroyed in the harbor and, and turned into what is now like the downtown core and portlands. And by extension of that, there was a piece of land called Leslie Street Spit, which was actually just a bunch of rubble from the city that they put into the water and which turned into this like almost like very narrow peninsula. And they were supposed to use it for port extension and then it never really got, that really never panned out. And then over time, more and more birds and other animals started using it. And so then there was interest in creating and restoring habitat in this area. So now they've turned the, the spit of land into four embayments and three wetlands. So we're just hoping that the habitat use is higher after the restoration and that the restoration was effective. And what would you see in your data if restoration efforts have been effective? There are eight species of fish tagged and you're focusing on three specific ones. What would that look like in your data? There's a bunch of different ways that we're looking at it right now. We're looking at depth use um, just to see during their spawning period, what types of depths are using because they've, they've added a bunch of spawning habitat that's shallower. So are they actually accessing that habitat during their spawning window? We're going to be looking at residency index, which gives an idea of habitat selection. So we'll be able to see 
before maybe habitat selection was lower for these restored areas than after the habitat selection was higher, suggesting that the that the restoration actions were effective. And then the last thing we're looking at is just the proportion of tagged individuals that are present at the site. And that's just because we've got varying effort in terms of the number of fish tagged in the system at any given time. So in the in the beginning years of the project, there was maybe 20 bass present in the system at all times. And then we kind of had some issues with COVID getting out to tag and all that. So then the sample size decreased over time. But anyway, so we're just trying to see how many are coming into these habitats, when are they using them, and uh, and the depth they're using. Right. And I know you mentioned comparing movement and habitat use now to before the restoration efforts were made. I should have asked this before, but what sort of data had been collected prior that you're able to compare between the two time periods? Actually, we do have a lot of data and it's acoustic telemetry data, which is pretty unique because oftentimes there's only tagging that has happened after the restoration. So you don't have that comparison point, which um, is hard to figure out how much or if a change has happened. And then we also have control data for the harbor as well, uh, which is also unique. So we're going to be able to compare the after restoration for before and to a control site, but then We've partnered with the Toronto and Region Conservation Authority, and they've got some really great data from long-term monitoring collected with electrofishing. So I'm working with a postdoc. His name is Sebastian Thies, and he is looking at all of the community data, which I have no clue how to analyze. So that's great. We've partnered, and he's helping out on that front. So we're going to be looking at biomass of the three species, and then we're also going to be looking at some indices such as number of Pisivores and uh, warm water versus cold water communities and, and stuff like that. This sounds like a great project. You mentioned earlier that you had something like 37 million data points or somewhere around that. So can you give us a little sneak peek into maybe some of your results if you've gotten to look at that data? So I'm just working on these data right now, but I have used the the data to look at other subjects. So I did look specifically at common carp within Lake Ontario. So I was able to look at um, habitat use and mobility within Lake Ontario because it is known that common carp can move can move far distances, but that's only been recorded in places like Australia. And so it was not known how mobile they were within Lake Ontario. So we had tags put out since 2010 and um, a lot of the fish left Toronto Harbour and some of them even went as far as the, the mouth of the St. Lawrence, which was over 300 kilometers away, following the near shore, and they were going to the American side too. So the carp are way more mobile than we were, we were thinking, and that has a lot of implications for management. Interesting. And was that movement, does it appear to be seasonal or at a certain time of year or just random? So a lot of the movements were undertaken during the summertime, and that's when they're spawning. And so this is concerning because there have been carp exclusion barriers placed within Toronto Harbour and and uh, Hamilton Harbour as well. But you can imagine that if a carp runs into a barrier in Toronto, it's like, well, that's fine. I'll just swim 300 kilometers and find another spawning site anywhere between here and the, and the St. Lawrence. The work just highlighted the need to look at the bigger picture for, for carp since they're moving so much. Right. You mentioned exclusion barriers that are in Lake Ontario, specifically aimed at carp. What are those barriers? 
So exclusion barriers are placed typically in bottleneck zones to try to stop invasive fish from accessing specific habitat. Normally that's spawning habitat, but when you put these barriers in, they can also block native species. So if you picture a large adult northern pike that might be trying to move into the same wetland to spawn, but it's also blocked. So it's hard to... So while you're solving one management problem, you're creating another and decreasing access to spawning habitat of native species. When you block native species while you're trying to block invasive species, that's called the connectivity conundrum. And one way to fix this is through selective fragmentation. So that's where you design the barriers in specific ways to let native fish pass while still minimizing or preventing access to common carp. Some of the different barriers that have been used for carp are based on morphology, so body size. So common carp tend to be a lot fatter than, than most native species or sensory capability. So if you picture the um, electric barriers that are present in the Chicago area waterway system that are currently stopping the invasive carp, such as big head and silver carp from accessing the Great Lakes. So those are two types of barriers. But another type of barrier that hasn't been used with common carp is barriers based on phenology. So that's just a big word for movements. And so the idea is to operate the barriers and lift them in accordance with these movements. Anyway, so to look at that, we basically we took a long-term data set of uh, largemouth bass, northern pike, and common carp accessing a wetland complex, which is our spawning habitat. And then I generated predictive models to help managers lift the barriers so that northern pike could pass through and then close them as common carp arrived. The problem was um, largemouth bass and common carp had a lot of overlap in their spawning movements because they're both needing those warmer temperatures, whereas northern pike are moving in a lot earlier. But anyway, so our, our plan was to generate these models and provide them to environmental managers to know when the, the northern pike are moving in based on air temperatures and then close them when the models would predict that common carp would be arriving. That is so interesting, especially using air temperatures to figure out when spawning is happening. That's different. Most times it's water temperature. We were really lucky because we got access to a data set from the Fishway, which is a barrier, a common carp barrier in, in Hamilton Harbor. And it's been operational since 1997. And basically the data set is all these, I only looked at three species, but there's t- more than 20 species of fish moving through. And so we had to turn to air temperature just because the data set has been going on for so long. And, and there was some water temperature data, but it, was, it didn't match up with, the, with all of the arrivals and the departures. So we basically were like, what is something that environmental managers definitely have access to all the time? And, and that's air temperature. So yeah, anybody right now could go to like Environment Canada's weather stations and download years and years and years of data. So that's why we went with air temperatures, even though it's not as biologically relevant to fish as water temperatures. So since your PhD research is interdisciplinary and we have discussed the biology aspect of your work, What other projects are you working on? I've got to work with Aquatic Habitat Toronto, and they are a partnership across so many different institutions, three levels of government, and Indigenous governments, as well as academic partners. And so 
The goal of Aquatic Habitat Toronto is to use knowledge co-production to help with ecological restoration. So normally um, it's assumed that when scientists produce their research, it gets used by environmental managers or decision makers, but that doesn't always happen because who has time to read all of these papers? I certainly don't. <laughs> so the whole point of Aquatic Habitat Toronto and, and knowledge co-production is to generate the research questions together, and that ensures that it's more relevant to the managers and policymakers that are actually using the data and to help them with deciding how to conduct ecological restorations. With Aquatic Habitat Toronto, is able to collect their lived experiences and perspectives on best practices and challenges of using knowledge co-production. And basically, we found that when using knowledge co-production, the research is more actionable and um, everybody's already at the table, so nobody has to get caught up on, on the findings of the research. And everybody's aware of the research much earlier compared to having to wait for the peer-reviewed publications to come out, which could take years. So those are just some of the some of the benefits and some of the challenges are that it does take more time and it takes more effort to build these relationships, build this trust, and it requires um, commitment from your institution to let you participate in the knowledge co-production process. But in the end, it does create like a better and more actionable piece of research. So that is more on the social sciences side of my research. My whole PhD has been with Aquatic Habitat Toronto. So we've been all of the all of the research I talked about before, all the biology side, some of the the institutions within Aquatic Habitat Toronto, like the Toronto Region Conservation Authority and Fisheries and Oceans Canada have been interested in these questions. So together we set out the research questions, set out the research plan, and I've been able to update them on the findings throughout the research process. So after field work, after analysis and and that was great because I didn't have to wait for that publication to come out. I was able to have online meetings with them and say, like, hey, look, at this is what we found. This is what we found for common carp barriers. Do you want the models now? Um, that sort of thing. So earlier at the start of the podcast, I mentioned that you recently returned from Western Norway and you've done some really cool research there. So just tell us all about that. Yeah, it was so much fun. It was such an awesome summer. So yeah, normally I'm a bit more of a control freak and I like to know like every single thing I'm going to be doing for every weekend for like the whole summer. But I was like, I'm just going to arrive and then let the let the researchers tell me where I'm needed and all that sort of thing. So I showed up and then they're like, okay, you're going to, they're like, okay, you're going five hours south of here for two weeks with a bunch of people you don't know to tag salmon. And I was like, okay, like, let's go. So um, I, yeah, I moved into my apartment, but then uh, went on a little road trip right after that. And it was so cool because it was my first time working with salmon. And we got to work with a bunch of local Norwegian fishermen. I had no clue what they were saying the whole time, but they were really good at catching fish. And so, yeah, I think I performed surgery on 40 Atlantic salmon while I was there. So that was like the first two weeks of my of my time in Norway. And then after that, I got to work with some marine species like cod and pollock and we even tagged some lobsters. And that was cool because the project was similar to my PhD. So it's looking at assessing the effectiveness of restoration with acoustic telemetry, again, but with these marine species. 
So the parallels there were cool. And then after that, I, they're like, okay, you're going, you're going six hours up north this time for another two weeks. And so I went up north and we radio tagged salmon, which I hadn't done before. So everything else had been acoustic tags. And then this was radio tags. That was great because we were using angling to catch the fish and I was horrible. Like I caught my own lure that I had, that I had lost a couple days before, before I caught one salmon, but I did catch one salmon. So I was really excited about that. But first it was really difficult, even for the people that do angle for salmon. So it wasn't just me. We were all having trouble capturing them. But yeah, I think in the end we got... Uh, most of our tags out and now the project is looking at otter predation so it's with a PhD student named Erlen Hansen and so he's going out and radio tracking all of these salmon every two weeks to figure out if they've been eaten by otters or not. Wow that is so interesting you definitely got to help out with it sounds like a lot of different research projects but how did this opportunity come about? So in Canada, we've got a funding body called MyTax, and they have this really cool program called Global Link, where you submit a research proposal and they basically fund you to expand your network, get new skills and bring them back so that you can apply them here. I highly recommend for all the Canadian students to check out MyTax. The, the grant was not too intense to write, and I think there's a pretty high success rate. And, and just getting to be able to go to another country and meet all these people and do stuff you've never worked before. Like I, my bucket list item for my PhD was to uh, work with salmon, even though my project wasn't on salmon. So that was really awesome that I could do that. And now I know a bunch of people in Norway that I'm continuing to work with. I'm not sure what opportunities there are in the States to, to conduct research visits, but I'm pretty sure that it's a, it's a fairly common process. And if, if you're doing a PhD, there's definitely time to, to have a research visit. That sounds like a great opportunity for sure, especially with all of the connections that you've made and the different relationships. And as you said, getting to build new skills essentially. So when you were in Norway doing all this amazing research and field work, did you get to visit any other countries? I was on like a a little Euro trip all summer because the flights are so much cheaper than coming from the middle of Canada. So yeah, my favorite place that I visited was the Faroe Islands and they're in between Iceland, Norway, and the UK. And they were just like, looked like a whole other planet. It was so amazing and everybody should definitely go there. So um, I was so excited when I found out that Bergen had direct flights to the Faroe Islands because from Toronto, they used to be like $5,000 to, to go there. And I've always wanted to go there. So when I saw the flights for 300, I was like, oh, I have to go. So it was a, that was definitely a highlight. It was so much fun. And, and it was a solo trip. I was by myself and I, I, I've traveled by myself before, but this was like, uh, when I've traveled before, I've always been like meeting somebody. So this was like, nope, you're like flying to the airport by yourself. You're getting the car by yourself. You're doing all the driving, blah, blah, blah. But anyways, it was totally worth it because it was so awesome. So yeah, that was one benefit. So think about that when you're when you're planning your, your research visit. Where else can you sneak in while you're there? Exactly. That's the way to do it. I also previously mentioned that you'd done some work with humpback whales. Where was that research? 
After my undergrad, I took a year off and I didn't know what I was going to be doing in that year at all, but I did land this internship. It was with Pacific Whale Foundation in Maui. And so I, I secured that because I think I, I took a field course during my undergrad and it was on, on cetaceans in Hong Kong and Taiwan. So that was cool. I had some like a little bit of experience to talk about during my interview. That was yeah, that was really cool too. It was just like, get on a plane, you're going somewhere you don't know anybody. I'm going to have all these roommates I've never met. So I, I got to work with a bunch of uh, other people, a bunch of other interns. And so we all lived together and we did field surveys together. And a lot of it wasn't as glamorous as you might think. So the the program's been going on for a while and they have, they have photos of all of the the flukes so the whale's tail and that's how you can identify each individual whale so we can see are they coming back when was the last time they were here are they here with the calf so we would go out in the field and we would take photos of their tails and then go back to the lab and then try to match them in this database just by scrolling through all these different whale tails and be like oh we finally found a match this one the last time it was here it was 13 years ago and it's and it's back again and it's got a calf so that's awesome yeah, that was like the main the main thing that I did when I was in Maui. That sounds unreal. And were you going out into the field on a daily basis and photographing these whales? And I think it was probably more like once every couple of weeks that we were going out. And then, yeah, so we were just, we would go out in the morning and then basically we're, we were just doing transects. And then if anybody saw a whale, we would go like take the, take the photo. And yeah, we got to see some other different species of cetaceans too, and, and we record all of those as well. So there's a lot of spinner dolphins in Maui, and we saw some false killer whales, which was really rare, and, and that was really cool as well. Yeah, for a while I was thinking about doing whale stuff, and then and then I realized that you see them for like one second when they surface before they go back down. And I was like, oh, that's kind of sad. It is really cool to be able to interact with the animal and like see them a bit more. But it was really, really fun working in working with whales and and living in Maui. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure. You mentioned that you did some work with DFO after your master's and prior to starting in the cook lab. What kind of work did you do while working with DFO? So I first started in the fish ecology lab, and that was my first taste with fish, I guess, and my first taste with acoustic telemetry, which I really, really liked. So that's why I continued on with my PhD. But I got to do a lot of electrofishing, and that's where I learned to do surgeries for acoustic telemetry. And then after that, I actually moved to a lower trophic uh, lab. So I studied a lot of zooplankton, but don't ask me anything about zooplankton because I, <laughs> I was focused on the fish at that point. But I did get to do a bunch of, of fish field work, which was really cool. My favorite project was we studied the impacts of harmful algal blooms in Lake Erie on fish habitat use. Um, so that was really awesome. I got to do a month of trawling in Lake Erie almost five years ago now and so we were we were just seeing um how how many fish there were inside and outside of harmful algal blooms and what what the impacts were and i'm also just working that data up now so that's gonna finally come out five years later hopefully hopefully soon (laughs) nice and was there a specific fish species that you were focusing 
on or was it just all fish species and how were you collecting that data? Yeah, so um, it was all fish species. And so we had a midwater trawl and a bottom water trawl. And we were doing hydroacoustics, so we were able to look at the actual biomass of fish within the water column. But a lot of what we caught was uh, walleye, yellow perch, white perch, um, that, that, type, that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so what did you find? It was really interesting in that we found that there wasn't actually that many differences in the habitat use across the, the bloom, so inside and outside of the bloom. And we found a bigger difference across um, day and night habitat use more than than inside and outside of the bloom, um, which actually goes against what most people were thinking, uh, how the what most people were thinking that the bloom would impact fish. Um, So that was really interesting. But we're looking at impacts beyond just habitat use, too. So we've taken samples to see how the harmful algal blooms are like bioaccumulating up the food web. So samples were taken for zooplankton and then we've got um, um, samples for the fish as well. So we're seeing how the toxins change across the food web. Interesting. You mentioned that there were large differences between habitat use in the day versus at night. What did that look like? Yeah, so it was interesting because it was just consistent with dial movements. Um, So the fish were uh, higher at night in the water column. So we had higher catches in the midwater trawl at night versus the bottom water trawl during the day when they moved back down. That's where we were finding the the bigger source of differences compared to the harmful algal blooms. Well, Morgan, now that the tough part of the interview is over, we are down to the final five questions. This is a group of five questions that I ask each of the guests that come on the show. We always start simple with, what is your favorite fish? Yeah, my favorite fish, I have to say, is American eel. They're just so cute, and they've got it really tough out there with all of the berries during their migration, and a lot of the public confuses them for lampreys. So it's just like, oh, yeah, they're just so cute. Whenever I catch one, I'm just so excited. What is your favorite memory from your career so far? My favorite memory so far was doing that research visit in Norway. Um, I highly recommend for people doing grad school or even even postdocs. And I guess it was kind of like a mini sabbatical for grad students in a way. But yeah, it was just so awesome to be able to live somewhere else, meet new people, work with new species and and just gain gain more skills to bring back here. So that was so awesome being able to spend the summer in Norway. If money was not an issue, what is one project that you would like to work on? I think it would be really cool to see how animals' movements and distributions are shifting with climate change on a large spatial scale. So just thinking about my postdoc project and and seeing where mackerel are migrating on an ocean-wide scale. It's like, okay, they're doing that now, but how is that going to be impacted when the the planet is warmer in 10, 20, 50 different years. And obviously that applies to so many different species. So if money wasn't an issue, I would love to have unlimited budget for tags, receivers, tag as many species as I could and use telemetry for monitoring purposes to see how all of these movements are impacted over time. If there was one point or principle that you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? 
Yeah, I guess this is more along the lines of like how to be successful in grad school, but I found it really helpful to stop working towards deadlines. And by that, I mean, don't wait until the last second to do stuff. Like if you can actually like retrain your brain to do stuff and get that work done a lot earlier, you can fill your time with more projects and get to get to work on so many more different things if you actually have been like, oh, you've, you've already finished that one thesis chapter and something pops up. It's like, oh, you've got the bandwidth to do it because you've already completed that. So um, I'd say like, don't wait until that committee meeting to do something. Don't wait until the last minute. It's just like, if you start thinking in that way, it's just like, if you, it compounds. So it's like, oh, I've got time to work on this project. This has come up, I can take on that. And then from there, it's just like, oh, I've actually got to do uh, some more things that I thought I was not like I wasn't anticipating at the beginning of taking on this project. So yeah, that's something that I started. I tried to start doing during undergrad and I'm not saying it's easy, but if you just try like a, a little bit every day over, over years, you're definitely, it'll, you'll benefit from it, especially in grad school. Morgan, thank you for coming on the podcast today. It was a pleasure hearing about you and all of your work. If people want to find out more information or get a hold of you, how would they do that? Well, if anybody's on Twitter or X, yeah, my handle is at Morgan Pizak. Um, so just my first and last name, and you can you can reach me there. I don't know how much longer the platform will be going on for, but for now, that's where I am. If you would like to get a hold of us, you can find us on Twitter or X, Facebook or Instagram at fisheriespod or old-fashioned email, feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Podcast logo shirts, hoodies, and stickers available on Teespring. I'm Caitlin Cunningham. Thank you for listening to the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, stop working towards deadlines. <laughs>